0: We are told that the Hammer of the Waters fell thousands of years before the Long Night. We are told that it was called down by the green seers of the Children of the Forest during their war with the invading, tree-burning, tree-chopping First Men. We are told that the Children's intent in calling down the Hammer was to shatter the arm of Doran land bridge connecting Westeros to Essos, where the First Men had previously migrated from, so that no more First Men could migrate. And we are told that shortly after the hammer fell, the leaders of both sides gathered on the Isle of Faces and signed the pact. We're told that all the weirwood trees on the Isle of Faces were given faces when the pact was signed, that something called the Sacred Order of Green Men was formed to keep watch over these weirwoods. And, most stunningly and inexplicably of all, we are told that the first men then pulled a complete cultural 180 and began worshipping the weirwood trees they had previously been cutting down or burning as fast as they could. It's quite the story, and quite a lot of it is wrong. Well, not wrong, just out of order in time. And even one change to when something happened can have huge ramifications, as you will see. So, welcome, my friends, to Timeline Heresy. Hey friends, David Lightbringer here, and look, I'm really not here to do some sort of of what-if-I-told-you-everything-you-know-about-the-age-of-heroes-is-wrong routine. But we do know that our beloved author George R.R. Martin does have quite a lot of fun creating a sort of of fog-of-history effect for his own fictional history of Westeros. And we know that we are supposed to try to figure out what really happened, right? For example, in the Hammer of the Waters video that I just did, we went through the myriad reasons Why the story of the children of the forest dropping the hammer to help them win a war against the first men makes basically no sense. With the train of thought going something like this. The first men had already crossed the Arm of Dorne in huge numbers before the Arm of Dorne broke. The children were already losing the war to those first men who were already in Westeros. The Children of the Forest's true name means those who sing the Song of Earth, and they more or less live their entire lives and afterlives in harmony with nature. And in fact, destroying the Earth to save themselves is the diametric opposite of their actual worldview as given to Bran in A Dance with Dragons. Where the children say that they are content to vanish quietly into the night, whereas men would fight and kill to stay alive. Notably, we've never actually seen or heard of any Green Seer powers that can cause earthquakes. And as I love to point out, if the children can wield targeted earthquakes as a weapon of war, then why didn't they do smaller hammers on the Ringforths before going full tilt and breaking the world? There's more to this argument, so again, please check out the Hammer of the Waters and Moat Kalen videos. And thank you, everyone, who has been. Those are, are doing great. And you can find those in this same Disaster Hunters of Ancient Westeros playlist. We're doing timeline heresy today, but that's the thing about disaster hunting. It leads to timeline heresy. And as you can see, it's very easy. Only takes a few bullet points, really, to begin poking holes in the accepted history that the Children of the Forest called down the Hammer of the Waters. It's also rather curious that the First Men signed a peace treaty when they were supposedly winning the war, and it's downright perplexing that the First Men spontaneously and voluntarily gave up whatever previous religions they had, and mass in favor of offering blood sacrifice to the weirwood trees, the sacred trees of their former enemies. It's always been a giant mystery, and I think I've got a most compelling answer for you, heresy though it may be. Now, like I said, we're not throwing out all the official history, I do believe that something fell from the heavens and broke the arm of Dorne, just based on the research we've done in the first two videos in this series. And I really do think we've pretty much proven that a real catastrophic land collapse event did happen there, one which also shook and flooded the Neck, laid waste to Moat and perhaps even parts of the Iron Islands. I also do believe that there was, in fact, a very important pact between the First Men and the Greenseers of the Children in the immediate aftermath of this disaster and that this is when the First Men adopted worship of the old gods of the Weirwood. The heresy comes in the when. This is timeline heresy after all, because I think the hammer of the water's cataclysm was actually one and the same as the Long Night cataclysm, as opposed to a separate cataclysm that happened centuries or eons even before the Long Night. If I'm right about that, then that means that the pact between the children and the First Men would actually have been the same pact that created the Night's Watch to fight the others in the War for the Dawn, which ended the Long Night. As you're about to see, this reshuffling of the timeline kinda makes everything make sense, so let me present the case for it to you, and you, as always, can be the judge. And by the way, yes, I did say I was gonna do the Ironborn video next in this series, but I'm here with this video about the pact instead because I realized that laying out this core theory of mine about the timeline will actually make the Ironborn video and the rest of the series go a little more smoothly. And also this heresy about the pact is just such a fun idea to play with. I almost did it right after the Hammer video, but I want to do the Moat Kalen video too, just to establish the scope of the disaster. And the key thing to understanding this approach is that I believe Martin has written all of his mythical history in more or less the same way, where every story has both elements of the truth and also specific errors or mistakes of the sort which happen over time and cultural evolution. Thus, we are invited to try to peel these stories apart, understanding that we're not supposed to just throw the whole thing out, but rather to look for key elements that have been shuffled around, mixed with other ideas, or which may have migrated from other places and had their localities and names changed. So for starters, yes, I think the evidence is pretty solid that the breaking of the Arm of Dorne was in fact a sudden cataclysmic event and not the result of gradual land erosion. The legends seem to be basically correct in this, and the maesters wrong. Although, you can't really blame them. I mean, sea level rise does submerge land over time, and this hammer of the water story does sound fishy, as we laid out. The maesters writing the world of ice and fire even mentioned the idea that the children of the forest breaking the arm of Doran to stop first men who were already in Westeros makes no sense. And of course, they're right about that. Nevertheless, a sudden collapse did occur, and the resulting tsunamis seem to have been recorded in the legend of Durin God's grief, trying and failing to build castles at Storm's End. But the fourth one still oh, we're not doing that again. Okay, um, despite the wrath of the wind and sea gods, you know the story, Storm's End, of course, is almost directly in the line of fire for any tsunami floods that such a land collapse, a massive land collapse, would have caused. Those floods would have raced up the narrow sea and everything on those shorelines basically would have been leveled. And this is just what we find in the Durn myth, where Durn's castle is destroyed and all of his wedding guests are killed by this storm and flood. So as you can see, the tradition of people having very bad times at Westerosi weddings, it goes back into the Dawn Age. And I guess this would be the wet wedding or the the flood wedding, I I don't know. But yeah, I'm not going if I get a wedding invitation in Westeros, anyway. So the heretical timeline shuffling comes in when we ask the question, what was the hammer of the waters then, if not some dark spell by the Green Seers of the children of the forest? I answered that question in the what was the hammer of the waters video. I mean, would've been quite a dud if I hadn't, right? Uh, by suggesting that the hammer was in fact a comet or meteor impact directly on the former arm of Dorne, which collapsed it and triggered earthquakes and tsunami flooding. What I didn't discuss in that video was the theory that this titanic apocalyptic impact event was actually the cause of the Long Night, precisely because I wasn't ready to get into all this timeline heresy yet. To wit, uh, if the hammer fell at the beginning of the Long Night, then the pact would have occurred during the Long Night. and. Thus, the teamwork we see reflected in the story of the Children of the Forest helping the Last Hero and the First Men of the Night's Watch assemble and rally to defeat the Others and end the Long Night would be the same teamwork which caused the Children and the First Men to make a peace treaty and which compelled the First Men to begin worshipping the Weirwoods instead of cutting them down. So there it is, right there. I mean, that's the TLDR on this video. That stands for too long, didn't read. It's, it's a Reddit thing. That's the short version, um, yeah. Now we have a reason why there was the peace treaty, why the first men adopted their religion, the Long Night. So think about this, the first Night's Watchmen before the arrival of the Andals would have all been Weirwood-worshipping first men, and they would have all sworn their Night's Watch oaths to the Weirwoods, just like John and Sam did, and that tradition has always seemed like a result of some kind of pact between the children and the Night's Watch. I mean, the Watchmen are essentially making a series of promises to the Weirwoods, and thus to the Green Seers inside those Weirwoods. And those promises amount to, I will defend Westeros during the Long Night. And what are they getting in return? Survival is the answer. The means to defeat the Others, from dragonglass weapons, to skin changer magic, to magically warded Weirwood caves, to basic tactics for fighting the Others and even just finding food during the famine of the long night. You'll notice that the children come up with cave mushrooms for Bran and company to eat, as well as cooking rats and fish they pull from the underground river to make blood stew, yummy. And maybe they throw in just a little bit of white meat. You know, white. The other, other white meat. Eh, don't tell Bran. That's only the beginning, but already you begin to see the scope of making this one change to the timeline of moving the hammer and the pact to the time of the Long Night instead of eons before. It really does unlock some truths about the Night's Watch, the Green Man, the Weirwoods, and the basic story of humans in Westeros, which is again why I wanted to talk about this now before the series goes any further. Speaking of unlocking secret truths, it's time for our new segment, Whatcha Reading with Reading Rhaegar. Hey Rhaegar, didn't see you on the couch there. Yes, well, I'm very good at hiding. Are those the same glasses you were wearing a moment ago? Absolutely. What you reading? Oh, all kinds of things, but I'm not here to talk about that. Really? That's the whole point of this segment, you know. I'm here today to talk about a dream I had. A dream of the future. Oh, okay. Well, that does sound interesting. I mean, we know how you like to think about the future. In my dream, I saw a whole world of flavor and I saw the mightiest of the Dragon Lords feasting on bowls of the most premium cereal, sweet and delicious, yet sugar-free and high in protein. These Dragon Lords were no children, David, and yet they were delighted to eat the cereal, for it was the cereal of the future. Grain-free and with only four to five grams of net carbs per serving, and only 140 calories. They ate the cereal in flavors of fruity, cocoa, peanut butter and frosted, and in their hands were shining spoons of valerian steel. Rhaegar, Rhaegar, I hate to interrupt you, man, but this cereal of the future that you're describing, it it already exists, and... Uh, what? They even called it Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon? Really? Does it come with a valerian steel spoon? No, Rhaegar. Valerian steel is a fictional metal. What? Besides, that's not what makes magic spoon magic. It's all that other stuff you were talking about. About how it reinvents your childhood favorites with simple, high-quality ingredients and zero sugar. How it gives you 13 to 14 grams of protein per serving to fuel you for the day. And how it fits a variety of lifestyles. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, wheat-free, and naturally flavored. It's pretty much just like your dream, except for it's uh, been around for a minute. Well, it is a recurring dream. I first had it as a child. And actually, the prophecy of the Magic Spoon goes back to old Valyria. All right, thanks, Rhaegar. And folks, I did choose Magic Spoon cereal for my first in-video ad because, as anyone who's ever known me knows, I do love cereal. And I've eaten it all my life, just, you know, a little less so as a health-conscious adult. So Magic Spoon really is a cool thing. And if you like cereal, like I do, then please do click the link below. To get started with a variety pack, fruity, cocoa, peanut butter, and frosted, just like Rhaegar said, and try Magic Spoon today. Now, be sure to use the promo code Lightbringer at the checkout for $5 off any order, or just go to magicspoon.com slash lightbringer. That's right, friends. Got my own promo code. Feels like a moment. Oh, yes, and Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money. No questions asked. Not even any questions about Valerian prophecy. So, in summation, you have three ways to order. One, click the link below. Or two, scan the QR code on the screen and use the code lightbringer. Or three, go to magicspoon.com slash lightbringer. Magic Spoon, hold on to the dream. Do you think they mean my dream? I did dream of cereal after all. Sure, Rhaegar, uh, absolutely. All right, well, if you've ever watched this channel before, basically ever, you've heard me talk about moon meteors as being the cause of the long night. Oh, speaking of which, I forgot my moon again. Moon. Huh, that's better. All right, so yes, moon meteors, it's kind of my big theory. It's what I'm known for. It's, it's become a joke. Should be a t-shirt. Maybe it will be soon. And in fact, the first video in this disaster hunter approach to ice and fire is really my Nightbringer series of videos, which lays out my best case for the moon meteor theory, which is just that uh, moon meteors are what caused the long night. It's basically disaster hunting the long night in five approximately 20 minute videos. So definitely check those out if ancient disasters and myths about disasters are your thing, which clearly it is since you're watching this video. Now the basic premise is actually very simple. The long night is described as a global darkness and was observed all over the known world from Westeros to Asshai. And there's really only three things that can cause that type of phenomena. A nuclear winter, a volcanic winter, or an impact winter. The idea behind all three of these is basically the same. Some sort of explosion which throws enough smoke, ash and vaporized rock and earth matter, burnt trees and forest animals, everything, thrown into the atmosphere to saturate it completely for years at a time. Now, going in order, nuclear weapons don't exist in this world, despite some more far-fetched theories you may have heard at a party one time, uh, and we could probably rule out volcanic winter as the cause of the Long Night simply because the Doom of Valyria, which happened only 400 years ago and is thus a matter of historical fact, was basically the biggest fantasy volcanic chain eruption that one could imagine and George is not imagining that it caused a long night. Meanwhile, we have abundant falling star sign in most of the ancient myths and legends scattered around the world of ice and fire, with many of those legends being directly connected to the long night. So here we go, deep breath. Uh, The Danes, of course, the Danes followed the track of a falling star to get to Westeros, and then they made a magic sword from that meteorite, which almost certainly is part of the Lightbringer last hero with Dragonsteel mythology, and of course, that is all closely connected to the Long Night. The Bloodstone Emperor, last ruler of the Great Empire of the Dawn, who reigned during the Long Night, was said to worship a black stone that fell from space, with his name, Bloodstone, even being a reference to his meteorite, which would have been a bleeding star in the sky, and thus a bloody stone, Bloodstone, on the ground. The Azora High legend, which supposedly takes place during the Long Night, involves the moon cracking when Lightbringer is forged. Miss nis cry of agony and ecstasy, which left a crack across the face of the moon. And of course, cracking moons can lead to falling space rocks. And thus, we have another Long Night legend involving magic swords and celestial cataclysms. And this time, a potential origin for the meteorites is given, which is the cracking of the moon. The cracking of the moon is also mentioned in another ancient legend, which comes from Karth, and that one describes the moon cracking during a solar eclipse. When the moon, which was like an egg, quote, wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. That's describing an eclipse alignment. And this Carthian tale names this moon cracking event as the origin of all dragons. Remember, the moon is like an egg, cracks open and the dragons are born, right? But of course, falling bits of cracked moon would hit the atmosphere as flaming meteorites, and could thus be described as dragons, since comets and meteors are often described as dragons in mythical stories. Speaking of dragons and comets, we must also speak of the prophecy of Azor High's rebirth, right? He's supposed to wake dragons from stone at a time when a new long night falls upon the world. This rebirth is, of course, supposed to happen under a bleeding star, which everyone takes to mean the red comet, Or, in another Melisandre quote about the prophecy, this is all supposed to happen when the stars bleed, which, multiple bleeding stars uh, can only be interpreted as a full-on meteor shower, so, yeah, this is all supposed to happen when a new long night falls, which means, folks, Melisandre's kind of giving away the end of the story here. The new long night that we all expect to fall near the end of the winds of winter will coincide with a shower of bleeding stars, except... Coincide is the wrong word because it is the bleeding stars which will cause the new long night itself. I've actually been predicting this for years, but then so is Melisandre. Not many people listen to her. Yeah, it's, it's you should get a YouTube channel, Melisandre. You'll get at least a few people listening. But even the bit about Azor High waking dragons from stone works as a description of a stone moon cracking to create stone moon meteors, right? The original Azor Ahai cracked the moon, according to legend, so he woke meteor dragons from stone. And of course, the Carthine myth gets at the same idea. The moon was like an egg, but cracked, and then gave birth to dragons, which were actually pieces of broken moon, falling through the atmosphere like flaming dragons. And just as me and Mel are out on an island predicting another moon meteor apocalypse, this Carthine legend also ends with a prophecy. That's right, it says, one day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. Actual winged dragons only died out just recently in the story, presumably long before this legend and prophecy was written. So it's pretty obvious that the dragons that come from the moon and which are predicted to return, are the meteor dragon kind. Look for them near the end of Winds of Winter. That's right. That's right. Now, truth be told, we also need to give a little credit to Benero, the high priest of Valor. He also seems to be predicting a moon meteor apocalypse, right in A Dance with Dragons, speaking of giving away the story. This is one of my favorite quotes, so I'll just read it, and this is Benero preaching to a giant crowd in Volantis. And it says, Benero jabbed a finger at the moon, made a fist, spread his hands wide. When his voice rose in a crescendo, flames leapt from his fingers with a sudden whoosh and made the crowd gasp. The priest could trace fiery letters in the air as well. Valerian glyphs. Tyrion recognized perhaps two in 10. One was doom, the other darkness. So as I've always said, if someone asked me to describe my theory in a game of charades, that's what it looked like. When the moon explodes, it creates darkness. Yeah, no wonder the crowd was upset. And people sometimes ask me like, Oh, you really think you really think there's going to be meteors like? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's all over the place. Uh, characters in the story are, are predicting it. Uh, but in addition to these myths, which I consider to be the central legends relating to the theoretical Long Night Moon Meteor Disaster, we also have more distant echoes of falling stars in other legends. Hugh Gore of the Hill, come on down. The, the first legendary figure in Andal culture and the Faith of the Seven, he was said to have had seven stars pulled down from heaven by the Father to make a crown. That's at the very least a story of falling stars sometime in the ancient past, and the element of a man who obtains godly power and kingship is also an element present in some of these other stories as well. It's basically a Prometheus element that we'll highlight as we go. Now sticking with the Faith of the Seven, we have the very interesting legend of Galadon of Morn, which Brienne of Tarth recalls in one of her Feast for Crows chapters. and Get ready Galadon, this is your big moment, I've never really gone into this myth in depth so I'm going to spend a little more time on it. And the legend of Galadon of Morn speaks of the Maiden the Faith of the Seven losing her heart to Galadon and giving him a magic sword, the Just Maid. So the phrase the Just Maid is a clear allusion to the constellation Virgo, who appears to be holding aloft the scales of Libra in the sky. So she's a just maid, and this is also the origin of the Lady Justice statues and depictions which adorn American courtrooms. There she is, it's Virgo holding up Libra. And in addition to that, the constellation Virgo is of course the celestial virgin, and thus an obvious analog to a goddess who is the maiden. So when we picture the Maiden as a constellation, this story would seem to be about stars falling from the heavens again, and once again, the falling stars are leading to a magic sword, just as with the Dawn legend. The phrasing of this celestial Maiden having lost her heart to Galadon also evokes the legend of Dawn, which refers to the heart of a fallen star. And hey, Galadon of Mourn, Sword of the morning. Maybe these two myths are talking about the same story. One also thinks of Nissa Nissa here, who lost her heart to forge Lightbringer, with Lightbringer actually being tempered in her living heart, according to legend. Galadon of Morn was also said to have slain a dragon with a just maid, but that could just be a reference to slaying the moon from the sky, like Azor Ahai did, which is an act that causes dragons to fall from the sky. There's actually another couple of clues to get us to think about the moon when we think of a celestial maiden losing her heart. And that's the Moon Maid constellation, likely the Westerosi name for Virgo. And obviously the name itself, Moon Maid, links the idea of a celestial maiden and the moon. Now each god of the Faith of the Seven also has one of the seven celestial wanderers associated with it. And of course the seven wanderers are regarded as the five planets visible from Earth with the naked eye plus the sun and moon. So, one imagines it's the Moon which would be associated with the Maiden, both because of the Moon Maid constellation and because the Moon is usually associated with female goddesses in real-world mythology. The Wildlings, that's right, we're not ignoring the Wildlings when we talk about mythology here, the Wildlings have a belief that the best time for a man to steal a wife is when the Red Wanderer, Mars, is in the Moon Maid. That, of course, would be a reference to Mars appearing inside the moon constellation. But since the red comet is called a wandering star, Martin is also painting us a picture of the red comet going into the moon Yeah, it's a little little dirty. And uh, that is, of course, how you crack a moon open and wake dragons from stone. It really is like a family portrait. The red comet, its dad is a big red dragon, and then him the moon to make a bunch of baby dragons. That's how it works. So as you can see, the Galadon myth, although more obscure, definitely sounds very similar to Dawn and Lightbringer folklore. And since Morn is an ancient ruined city on the Isle of Tarth, one imagines the more original Dawn mythology probably made its way to Tarth and reformed a bit around the local figures and names, and eventually the maiden of the Faith of the Seven. And speaking of names, Galadon, is probably derived from Aladdin. Galadon, Aladon, Aladdin, which means noble or excellent in faith. The story says that Galadon of Morn was a knight of such virtue that the maiden herself lost her heart to him. So this idea tracks pretty well, right? He was so noble, the goddess of his faith granted him a magic sword. Now, we're talking ancient myths here, right? But it's not just the ancient myths. Anytime Martin parallels those myths in the main story, we're gonna get the same sort of clues. So just to give you an example of this, Galadon, his entire story is in A Song of Ice and Fire because it's meant to parallel Brienne's quest for honor and knightly virtue, right? She compares herself to Galadon and then thinks of Galadon's magic sword as she finally decides to wield Oathkeeper, Oh, it's Foamkeeper. She has the real one, Oathkeeper. It cuts better. And, of course, Oathkeeper is a Valerian steel sword forged with magic, so a magic sword. And she's wielding it in battle against the Bloody Mummers on Cracklaw Point. Shout out to Nimble Dick, that's that's right. Um. But Oathkeeper, in addition to being a Valerian steel sword, of course, has been dyed red at this point, making it a Red Sword of Heroes for heroic Brienne. And that's the name for Lightbringer, as most of you will know, the Red Sword of Heroes and back before Mott split ice into Widow's Wail and Oathkeeper and colored them partially red, there's a scene where Arya, on the run in the countryside in A Clash of Kings, looks up at the red comet and sees it as her father's sword, ice, but covered in Ned's red blood. Just one sentence before that, Gendry had described the red comet as a sword, red hot from the forge. So, together, we've got the whole Lightbringer foraging story applied to the comet and Ned's Ice. A red hot blade, fresh from the forge, and now running red with the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Now, I'm not trying to say that Ned's Ice is Lightbringer. Uh, I do think there will be any number of Valyrian steel swords that may end up running red with magical fire in the battle against the others, including Oathkeeper and or Widow's Wail. But my point here is simply to point out that George has interwoven comets and meteors into absolutely everything having to do with Lightbringer, the Long Night, and Azor High, From the old myths, the old prophecies of the future, to the events unfolding in the current story. Finally, we have the legends that we discussed in the Hammer of the Waters and the Moat Kaelin videos. The hammer legend itself, of course, refers to something being called down, which smashed the land like a hammer, and once you think about that as a description of a meteor impact, it's pretty hard to unsee. Like, what else could that even be talking about? George, as I mentioned in the previous video, left a big clue in the name of the largest island in the Stepstones Island chain that is all that's left of the Broken Arm of Dorne, and that would be Bloodstone Island. Of course, the Bloodstone Emperor, as I just said, worshipped a black meteor during the long night and is named after his meteor. So here in the spot where the hammer of the waters fell, we have Bloodstone Island. So it's a reader clue. not saying Bloodstone Emperor sailed there and named the island after himself. It's a reader clue from George to us. What for, you know? What was the hammer of the waters? It was a bloodstone, a bleeding star, a meteor. That's that's what did it. Now the Durin God's Grief legend doesn't really have any meteor sign. Uh, there is a goddess stolen, kind of stolen down to the earth. She's the daughter of the wind and the sea gods, and when she marries Dern, she becomes she dooms herself to a mortal existence. Kind of like the Maiden herself from the Galadon story, maybe even Nissa. Nissa. The main thing here is that the storm and the flood was sent by the gods, so here we can see at least the vague outlines of the concept of the wrath of heaven, i.e. things from the sky, or nature turning against man if you want to say, and wreaking destruction on the land. The Grey King mythology, which we're going to get into in the Ironborn videos parallels the Duran and Hammer legends, as I've been saying, but it's far more clear about Meteors being the source of the storms, floods, earthquakes, and general destruction that hit Westeros during the Long Night. I don't want to steal the thunder of those videos, it's a storm god thunderbolt joke, but one of his stories has the Grey King slaying Naga, the first sea dragon who drowned whole islands in her wrath. Sorry, little damp hair voice sneaking in there. And if Meteors, can be dragons, then sea dragon could just be talking about a meteor that falls into the sea or near the sea and causes tidal waves that flood islands and low-lying areas of land. That interpretation of the sea dragon myth is also exactly the story that we've put together with Moat Kaelin. The hammer of the water's meteor fell on the arm of Doran and then flooding, submerged, drowned the low-lying islands and areas of land, such as the Neck and all the, you know, midsection of Westeros around Mount Kaelin, and left it a swamp. The Grey King also possessed the fire of this slain sea dragon, so maybe this is similar to these other legends where people are possessing meteors, worshiping meteors, making crowns and swords from meteors, and so on. The Grey King was also said to have brought fire to the earth, Prometheus-like, by taunting the Storm God, who lashed out with a mighty thunderbolt that set a tree ablaze. This thunderbolt could easily be another meteor legend, as meteors were sometimes called thunderstones in the ancient world for obvious reasons. Since falling meteors that impact with a boom are kind of like lightning bolts on steroids, right? I'll save the rest for the Ironborn video, but yes, here are yet more disaster legends that seem to involve things falling from heaven. As you can see, when we set aside the more magical ideas and theories and just look at the ancient legends of ice and fire as a cultural anthropologist would, and shout out to our cultural anthropologists in the audience, it's very clear that falling stars were a big deal, specifically in conjunction with a long night. There's a lot more evidence than what I've just given you, check out the Nightbringer series, Uh, but sticking with our disaster hunter approach, I've just given you a sort of eagle-eye view of the ancient memory of mankind in Westeros, or maybe I should say the meteor-eye view, since that's apparently what's flying overhead in ancient Westeros. So now that I've sold you on this idea as at least being plausible, I I hope you consider it to be plausible, we're ready for the main helping of timeline heresy. So the revised order of events that we have so far goes like this. The First Men migrate over the arm of Dorne and into southern Westeros. The First Men, in some places at least, wage war on the Children of the Forest. Now, I think this was probably more like a gradual takeover than a focused war, with some amount of battle and even genocide mixed in with periods of cooperation and probably a few broken peace treaties. This period of time, which I think about as the Dawn Age, is then interrupted by the Long Night meteor impact, or impacts, and the subsequent invasion of the others. Mankind is doing poorly, losing the war against the others, just as the legends say, and then the last hero obtains unknown help from the children of the forest when his mission was most imperiled. This is probably when the pact is signed, where, we don't know, but somehow, cooperation between men and the children is achieved, and the Night's Watch is formed, and the tradition of swearing the oaths to the weirwoods are created, all that happens around then. And then as a result we see the children helping the first men of the Night's Watch rally to fight and win the war for the dawn arming them with dragon glass and presumably other magic and knowledge the first men who survived the long night then take up the religion of the children of the forest who saved them which, of course, is the worship of the weirwoods and the greenseers. With potentially very few exceptions, the remaining first men and children coexist peacefully for a good period of time, it seems, with the first men building all of their major castles around pre-existing weirwood trees. Then, some time later, the Andals arrive and begin their conquest. In places like the High Heart, the first men ally with the children to try to fight the Andals and, in fact, were slaughtered alongside the children. We also hear about King Duran the XI, who forms the Weirwood Alliance with the Children of the Forest to oppose the Andals with some amount of success. Eventually, only First Men Houses north of the Neck and a few south of the Neck like House Blackwood maintain worship of the Weirwoods, as over time the rest of the First Men are gradually subsumed into the culture and religion of the Andals. Now doesn't that make a lot more sense? And we're not done either. Let's think about the idea of the First Men adopting a new religion, so to speak. Because honestly, that's one of the most inexplicable parts of the official story. The idea that no reason is given for this huge cultural change. The Children of the Forest helping mankind survive the Long Night and defeat or at least neutralize the White Walkers certainly fits well here as a reason for this, but there's actually a little more to it. We have to think about what the Long Night would really have been like. A prolonged global winter, anything longer than a few years, would mean global famine and thus, in short order, global anarchy. Because, of course, as food becomes scarce, law and order breaks down a bit. Uh, And so the kings and warlords and priests, who had previously held political and social authority, would see their power crumble. You saw with Joffrey and the king bread riots, it it happens fast when people are hungry. Uh, No one pays taxes when they're starving to death, in fact, and a starving man will do just about anything to eat. Grandiose sermons about the gods fall flat too when the only thing anyone gets from the heavens is judgment and wrath and flaming chunks of broken moon rock, according to theory. Whatever gods were perceived to be in charge, would probably have been seen to have failed, to have lost their ability to protect their people. And certainly that would be true for any kings or queens or other political figures. Add to that the dropping temperatures, snowstorms, and murderous ice demons. It was a wild time. No, no, it wasn't. It was horrific. It was a horrific time, during which most people then living would have died. In short, the Long Night has to be understood as a cultural bottleneck. Welcome to bottleneck theory. And that just means that very few social, political, or religious institutions would have survived to see the other side of this long night bottleneck. It would have been a big, giant, flashing red reset button for all of humanity. And it's the survivors whose stories that we have. And that's why it makes even more sense than first appeared that the first men who did make it through the long night then took up worship of the Weirwoods. Those people, specifically, would have been saved by the children of the forest and their magics. And so, the survivors' loyalty and faith was now placed in the greenseers. They were obviously more powerful than whatever gods the first men were worshiping before, right? So now we come to some real heresy, oh yes. The delineation drawn between the Dawn Age and the Age of Heroes. Okay, so the Dawn Age is thought of as having come first, right? And as having ended with the hammer of the waters and the pact between the humans and the children of the forest. Then, supposedly, comes the Age of Heroes, where the great houses such as Stark, Durrandon, Casterly, and then Lannister, etc., are formed. The Age of Heroes, supposedly, ends with the Long Night and the defeat of the Others, hence the name The Last Hero. Now, with our heretical alteration to the timeline of the Hammer and the Pact coinciding with the Long Night, this part of the story makes a lot more sense. With bottleneck theory in mind, we can see, of course, why ancient Westeros history does appear to the Maesters to sort into two categories. Because before and after the Long Night would look very different. So the Dawn Age then, according to me, becomes everything before the Long Night. It's a time only glimpsed through the fog of very distant memories carried through the Long Night by its survivors, so it's very vague, wild, and mystical sounding. The Age of Heroes, on the other hand, is the beginning of surviving history and of survivor history. Bottleneck Principle dictates that most any institution or great house that still exists at the time of the present story must have been established after the Long Night, and not before else it would have been wiped out. That's how we know the Age of Heroes came after the Long Night, and this is exactly what we see during the Age of Heroes. Bran the Builder, founding Winterfell, around the Heart Tree and the caverns which would become the crypts. Durin God's Grief, building Storm's End around a Heart Tree and its associated caverns, which we know are magically warded, and founding the Durandan line of Storm Kings, which was eventually taken over by the Baratheans. Land the Clever, winkling Casterly Rock from the Casterlies, who themselves probably survived the long night by huddling in their Weirwood grotto that we know exists under the rock where the sea comes in. The High Towers found the Citadel, which contains a monstrously huge Weirwood on the Isle of Ravens. And of course, they build the High Tower. Recall also that Bran the Builder is associated not only with building Winterfell, but also Storm's End and Uthor's Tower, the one which still stands today. All of this sounds like the survivors of the Long Night rallying to set up new institutions and even helping one another in some cases with that Long Night spirit of teamwork and cooperation still fresh and active. Green Men also have a big influence at this time too. The Sacred Order of Green Men is formed on the Isle of Faces, supposedly, and then we see ancient kings mimicking or worshiping green men, such as the antler hat wearing Durandon Kings, the green kings of House Gardener who sat on the living oakenseed throne in Highgarden, and really all the houses in the Reach which claim to descend from Garth the Green, who is himself described exactly like a green man, and who planted weirwoods, whatever that means. So that's the Age of Heroes. It's a period of time when the heroes of the Long Night began to carve out a new future for the First Men, and notably, one in which they worked together with the custodians of their magical, living continent of Westeros, the Children of the Forest. Bran the Builder, of course, was taken to a secret place to learn the language of the Children of the Forest, while one story about Durin God's Grief has the Children of the Forest helping him build Storm's End. Now, it's true Durin God's Grief was also said to war on the Children in the Rainwood Forest, but it's also said that his son Durin the Devout gave the Rainwood back to the Children, so it sounds like he's a devout worshiper of the Old Gods. We've already mentioned the Children helping the Last Hero in the Night's Watch, something which apparently continued long after the Long Night ended, with the children supplying the watch with dragon glass. Uh, that's recorded in the records of the Night's Watch. Even Paramore Hightower, Paramore the Twisted, and the other people who organized what would become the Citadel in Old Town consulted with the Children of the Forest. It may surprise some of you to learn. So, from Old Town to Winterfell, to the Night's Watch up on the wall, we see First Men working with the Children of the Forest, and specifically during the time that Mankind was setting up all these new institutions, which would last for the next five to eight thousand years, or however long it's been. So you see what I mean? The Age of Heroes really couldn't have existed before the Long Night, because all those houses that were founded during that time would have perished, and they didn't, they're still here. Now the most striking, inarguable detail that points towards the kind of across-the-board cooperation with the children that would follow something like the pact is the fact that the First Men, again, built all of their great castles around weirwood trees. These castles couldn't have been built during any time in which the First Men were at war with the children, because why would they build them around God's woods otherwise? And literally every single old castle is like this, built around a weirwood tree. So this entire phase of existence of the First Men, known as the Age of Heroes, really only existed because of mankind's cooperation with the Children of the Forest, both during and after the Long Night. The evidence points to a stark reality, if you will. The Children of the Forest basically held the hand of humanity and helped them out of the Dark Ages, figuratively and literally. One thing we don't know for sure is when the First Men started interbreeding with the children, and possibly the Green Men, thereby inheriting their powers of skin-changing and green-seeing. I will say that many, or even most, of these heroic founders of Great Houses kinda seem like sorcerers, green-seers, or skin-changers, so it may well be that access to these powers predates the Long Night. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that it was humans Getting their hands on Green Seer and Skin Changer magic that started a lot of the trouble. And by trouble, I mean things like the creation of the others, or even the idea of someone being able to summon the Comet of Ancient Destruction. It's basically a dark Prometheus story over and over with many of these disaster myths, as we find that hubris is the hallmark of characters like Durin God's Grief, the Grey King, the Bloodstone Emperor, Knight's King, Azor High, Land the Clever and even gluttonous Garth the Green himself. With the older stories of Garth saying that he demanded blood sacrifice instead of being sacrificed himself. Now let's discuss the blood magic that is supposedly at the heart of our two primary myths that we're comparing, the Hammer of the Waters legend itself and the Azor High legend about the cracking of the moon because there's another somewhat stunning ramification of our timeline shuffle to consider. So in the hammer video I made a big deal comparing the hammer myth to the Dern God's Grief flood myth, pointing out that according to legend, it was the Green Seers on the Isle of Faces who called down the hammer, and that that sounds similar to Dern God's Grief, dressing up like a green man and calling down the great storm. Now another important parallel was the murder of children of the forest, right? Dern God's Grief warred on them in the rainwood, as I mentioned, while some tales of the hammer of the water state that the Green Seers sacrificed their own young on the Isle of Faces to power the magic of the hammer. Now, of course, it doesn't make sense for the children to sacrifice their own young to save themselves since they only exist in small numbers. However, the idea that someone sacrificed children of the forest to work dark magic is persistent. Even the legend of the pact, which talks about every tree on the Isle of Faces being given a face could imply mass blood sacrifice since Blood sacrifice to Weirwoods is definitely a thing, and may well be part of the magic of giving a tree a face. It just wouldn't have been the Green Seers of the Children sacrificing their own young, but rather some dark sorcerer trying to steal their power. Someone like Azor Ahai, who broke the moon. Murdered his wife, Nissa, Nissa in an act of horrible blood magic. That's right, don't believe the hype, don't believe the propaganda. Breaking the moon caused the long night, and it was Azor Ahai who did that. He did it by, again, killing his wife, Nissa, Nissa and that's supposed to be a major red flag for us readers to let us know that this fella was not the hero. Check out the video, Azor Ahai, the bad guy, very straightforward title, for more of this discussion. But for now, here's what I want to zero in on, the blood magic. Okay, so the hammer of the waters was supposedly called down by blood magic sacrifice. Azor High broke the moon, which created the moon meteor that smashed into the arm of Dorn, the actual hammer of the waters, but he too did this through an act of blood magic sacrifice, just like the hammer. So could these, in fact, be two versions of the same story? Could the murder of Nissa Nissa and the sacrifice of children that might have powered the hammer of the waters be the same horrific act of blood magic? That might imply that Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest, and guess what? I have a trilogy of videos called The Weirwood Goddess, which lays out what I think is a pretty compelling case that yes, Nissanissa Nissa was some kind of weirwood woman, a child of the forest, or a human-child hybrid, or perhaps even a female of the green man race, whoever the green men are. If you think squisher maidens are lovely, you should see Lady Cernunos. Oh, yes. Now, anyone from Scandinavia won't be surprised to hear me suggest that Nissa Nissa is a child of the forest, an elf, if you will, as they have a very old tradition of believing in little elves called the Niss, or the Nissa. I'm not sure quite how it's pronounced, but it's N-I-S-S-E, as you can see. And the Niss, they inhabit trees and hills and farmsteads. There's a risk hear of me opening up a portal in this script which side branches again into a three-video series. So just check out the Weird Word Goddess playlist and let me tease you with this idea that, yeah, Nissa Nissa might have been a child of the forest and her murder might have been the same thing as the massacre of Children of the Forest on the Isle of Faces. At the very least, the themes of the stories match. In one story, Nissa Nissa is killed and the moon cracks, giving birth to meteor dragons. In the other... Children of the forest are killed, and the hammer of the waters falls. Figuring out that the hammer was a moon meteor unites the stories, and at the heart of both, we find blood magic sacrifice. I actually wouldn't be surprised to learn that Azor Ahai killed Nissa Nissa, and potentially more children of the forest and green men on the Isle of Faces. That's right. You might ask how Azor Ahai's myth comes from Ashai. then. Well, he originally came from Ashai, so whatever he did in Westeros, the story would have made it back to Ashai. And 8,000 years later, yeah, nobody remembers where it happened. Just that killing Nisanissa caused the moon to crack, and then everything was dark. Okay, so to finish this up, let's circle back to the formation of the Night's Watch. Once we move the hammer and the pact to the time of the long night, then the parallel of the two watches really jumps out at you, right? On one hand, we have the formation of the Sacred Order of Green Men. To keep watch over the Weirwoods on the Isle of Faces. And on the other hand, we have the formation of the Night's Watch, but again, under the watchful eyes of the Green Seers, to whom they swore their oaths. Are these two, st- I hate to repeat myself, but are these two stories actually talking about the same thing, the same watch, or maybe similar watches? Were the first men of the Night's Watch perhaps Green Seers, or even Green Men? Like the Weirwood Watch on the Isle of Faces, or maybe Green Men just means first man with green greenseer magic. And is this why Cold Hands is riding a great elk, just as the Green Men were said to? Sorry to just throw a bunch of questions at you, but I did answer them, or try to, in a recent video called The Green Men of the Nightfort. So I'll refer you to that for the rest of this theory, but let's consider a couple of things right now. The earliest castle on the wall is supposed to be the Nightfort. And the Nightfort is pretty obviously yet another first-man castle built around a weirwood. I actually call this one a weirwood organism instead of a tree, because it seems like the talking weirwood face known as the Black Gate, which is some 50 to 100 feet below the ground, is actually part of the same organism that sprouted a new weirwood tree up through the floor of the kitchens. You know, the one Bran sees, twisting up towards the hole in the roof and... Seeming to reach up for the moon to pull it down into the well. Oh yeah. Now most think the wall was built after the Long Night in order to stop another invasion of the others who emerged for the first time during the Long Night. I would tend to agree with that, and I would assert that the Night Fort predates the wall, with the Night Fort's location being determined by the presence of this fairly unique weirwood organism, which, by the way, happens to use the Night's Watch vows as a kind of passcode. In other words, this does kind of look like another sacred order formed to watch over an important weirwood. They built a castle around this one, and again, it talks and knows the Night's Watch oaths. So, whether a watch existed here prior to the Long Night is a complex question that I answered in that Nightfort video, but the short answer is, I think so. And it seems that both the origin of the Night's Watch and the origins of the Others are tied to this original green man watch that I think existed at the fort, Likely a twin to the one on the Isle of Faces. So that would be the same watch that Night's King was the 13th man to lead. And that is the answer to how he and his other spawning Night's Queen can exist during the Long Night. And not shortly after, as is sometimes believed. That's another one of my timeline heresies, although it's not really mine. I was far from the first to suggest it. Check out Origin of the Others, Knight's Queen, for that story, but hopefully you're familiar with the basic conundrum here. Knight's King and Queen seem very much like the progenitors of the Others, but if he was the 13th man to lead the Watch, then that implies that he came 13 Lord Commanders after the last hero, right? And the last hero is the first man to lead the Watch. The Knight's Watch, anyway. But if the Night's Watch of the Long Night was created from a previously existing Green Man watch, that could explain it. And indeed, this is my working hypothesis. All right, friends, hope you've enjoyed your timeline heresy. And in fact, I imagine the old gods are pleased and we can shed light on the fog of history. So maybe it's not heresy after all. I will be back next with an Ironborn video, although at this point there may actually be three Ironborn videos, there's just so much to talk about. That sea stone chair, Castle Pike, which no one knows who built it, the Great King is a possible ancient mariner from a foreign land, weirwood arcs and thrones hidden in plain sight, lots of signs of natural disasters, and lots of squishers coming out of the sea to run a successful breeding slash farming program of humans. So get hype. And until then... Look for me on Sundays and occasionally Fridays for live streams. You know the drill. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel and turn your YouTube phone notifications on so you get a beep whenever I go live. That's, that's the key part. If you'd like to support the channel and our ongoing disaster hunting and heresy, then buy some cereal. Seriously, that would, that would be cool. Uh, you can also check out the PayPal link in the description below or the red join button next to the subscribe button. Thanks to everyone who supports me. Thank you very much. I hope I'm proving to be a good champion of ice and fire for y'all. Peace. I'm out.